Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from the front lines, hear reporting on the ground in Hungary, and we interview Mykola Kuleba, founder of Save Ukraine, an organisation that rescues and rehabilitates Ukrainian children kidnapped by Russia. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 17th of November. One year and 266 days since the full-scale invasion began. And joining me today are Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley, Brussels Correspondent Joe Barnes, and our guest is Mykola Kuleba, a Ukrainian statesman, children's rights advocate and humanitarian, and, on Thursday night, winner of the prestigious Magnitsky Prize. But I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Sure. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Welcome, Makola, here in the studio. So let's start down south and Russian shelling in the southern city of Herzon and down the coast to about eight k's to the west of the town of Bilzerka. Yesterday has resulted in deaths and injuries. That's from the region's governor. The city, you will remember, has been shelled relentlessly by Russia from the opposite bank of the Dnipro since they pulled out last year. And Hezon Regional Administration says that over the last 24 hours, the region's been shelled 58 times, 43 of which were in the city itself. Now then, a bit further to the northeast, geolocated footage show that Ukraine forces have advanced in the vicinity of uh, Robotinia and Vobove. That's in the salient that has been the main focus of the, the counteroffensive. They've also been shown to have advanced across the Dnipro, around the town of Kriinki. More on that in a moment. Back to that salient, which uh, many people assessing that the counteroffensive is drawing down. That would be kind of in operational terms, so big moves. But of course, there's going to be tactical moves. So it looks like the Ukrainian forces have slightly advanced in that area. Um, when I say that the it's drawing down in operational terms, that means that they that area probably is not going to be the focus and the and the priority for for major logistic resupply, the main effort, so to speak, the area where you push everything to the um, and you denude other areas. So I think it is drawing down in operational terms, but of course there will still be both sides. Well, should be looking for tactical advantage. Um, now, also geolocated footage from yesterday shows Russian forces advance marginally north of the Avdivka coke plant that's in the area of the town so the road from the town runs out to the northwest so the coke plant is a, is a, a much fought over position 
Now, yesterday I was in a background brief with a with a Western official. You'll remember this happens periodically, every few weeks. I'm not going to say who it was or where they were from, the nationality or anything. But they were in the right place and they know what they're talking about. So, so you either choose to believe me or you don't. But I would suggest you do. We were talking about the area down around Dnipro and the river and quite what's happening there. And the Western officials said that elements of three brigades... Uh, and when we when we pressed the individual, they said they were talking hundreds of troops. So not just not just the dozens that we had perhaps been assessing, but hundreds of Ukrainian troops and some vehicles had got, are across the river and are slowly building um, the bridgehead there, which is in some places up to four kilometres deep. Now, how much of that is armour, and how much of that is sort of armoured personnel carriers, vice the much heavier and solid infantry fighting vehicles, let alone tanks, we don't know. Not seen any tanks yet. Um, so all that is questionable about how many vehicles are across, but the Western official was making the point that the force that is over there, Russia is currently unable to push them back or have a have a big effect on them. Now, they did say Ukraine is not m- pushing massively forward there. It might be because the ground is unfavourable. It's very boggy and marshy and quite tricky to move about so that not only hinders your forward movement but also if you if you go too far and find that you need to withdraw in good order if you do come up against a strong and determined enemy attack it's very tricky so that might explain why they are moving laterally along the river rather than trying to push deeper into into the region there the western official assessment is that they are there the ukrainian forces are there to hold russian troops at risk and what that means is that if you have a picture yourself for a moment as a Russian commander, and if you have a reasonably large, well-equipped and and very violent force on your doorstep or on your on your left flank here, if you're if you're the Russian commander in um, Herzon and down south, do you take the risk of moving troops from that area to reinforce Avdivka, for example, or attempt to close the salient in Zaporizhia Oblast that, that the Ukraine's managed in the counteroffensive, or would that risk letting the Ukrainian force that is currently across the Dnipro consolidate even further. So, yeah, these are classic military problems. The Western official described this as stretching the Russians. Separately, the uh, the, the official we were talking about, the Air Force, uh, and they said that the Russian Air Force is still very active, but it was noted that over the last 50 days, or it has been 50 days since there's been any strikes from Russia's long-range bombers. Now, they were likely referring here to the nuclear-capable TU-22M3 backfire, designated backfire by NATO. That's a supersonic bomber, part of Russia's uh, long-range aviation fleet. We think Russia had about 60, but you may remember one of them was assessed as being destroyed in a quadcopter drone strike in late August at the the airbase in Novgorod, about 650 k's inside Russia. Anyway, those are the, those are the, the, the aircraft we're talking about. But on the uh, just on the on the long range aviation, I note that today's British Defence Intelligence update said that for the first time Russia has started using its A fifty mainstay airborne early warning aircraft. So basically, air traffic control in the sky. Um, their A fifties are being used out of their primary role of coordinating fighter jets and being used to identify targets on the ground in Ukraine for then. SA-21 long-range ground-based air defence systems missiles to to attack. Now, compared to the SA-21's 
normal radar. The mainstay is much more capable because it's airborne. It can see further because of the curvature of the Earth, basically. It's all down to physics. And I didn't fail my O-level in physics for nothing, so I'm not going to go any further there. But anyway, Russia, uh, British defense officials saying that Russia has likely brought into service this this innovation, if you like, this um, using mainstay and SA-21 together, partially because Russia is concerned about the prospect of Ukraine getting hold of Western-provided combat aircraft, F-16s, Gripen, so on and so forth. British Defence Intelligence say there is a realistic possibility that Russia will accept more risk by flying mainstay closer to the front line in order to carry out this new role. So there's obviously a, a greater risk there. Uh, anyway, back to the Western official. And just generally, we were talking about the ground war, and it was assessed that neither side is able to carry out decisive operations on land for the foreseeable future. However, it was noted that both sides are using artillery at a rate they're able to sustain. So tempo is lower. There is a reduced tempo of firing, but Ukraine uh, is said to have enough 155 mil ammunition to support the operations it chooses to for now, and the same for Russia, uh, 152 mil that they use. Another Western official t- told me earlier this week that the that large supply, thought to be about a million artillery shells from North Korea to Russia, hasn't worked out um, exactly as hoped. The, the quantity is there, but the quality is questionable. Some manufacturing tolerances in those rounds are thought to be a bit dodgy. The quality control not been uh, as it should be. Some rounds have not been fitting the barrels exactly, and they only need a slight gap, a tiny little gap between the, the round and the barrel for some of the, the gases, the explosive charge when the thing fires. If those gases escape around the side of the shell instead of just going all behind it and pushing it out for 20, 30 kilometers, what have you. If some of the gases escape around the side of the shell, it can then just cause the barrel to split. The whole thing just blows up like a sort of cartoon comedy cigar type thing. That has been happening. Some Russian barrels have been splitting and bursting, thought to be because of the um, some of the poor quality of the shells they've been getting from North Korea. Okay, a couple more bits and pieces. We're talking casualties always tricky to get uh, any sort of firm idea here but the western official was saying russian casualties so dead and wounded thought to be between three and four hundred thousand and have been up to a thousand a day at the peak of fighting in avdivka it's very difficult to estimate ukrainian losses kiev is not publicizing figures and the western sensors and surveillance capabilities are obviously looking at russian lines not ukrainian positions so it's very difficult to get an idea there having said that and noting that you have fewer casualties when you're on the defensive, Ukrainian losses are said by the Western officials to be, quote, significantly less than Russia at the moment. And just finally, on the battlefield stuff, Western officials said that, that Crimea is increasingly seen as a point of vulnerability for Russia, not a strength, and noted that more air defence has been moved there to counter the threat from Ukraine's long-range strike capability, Storm Shadow, Scout, the French, well, the same same missile, different name, um, High Mars, Attackums, and so on. But very briefly onto the political stuff, again, still with the, the officials. They are saying that the US administration, Biden administration, is very confident that they will get the funding package through for Ukraine. It might take some time, given what's happening at the moment, but they're confident they will get there. They noted Germany is expected to announce a very significant, their words, very significant multi-year support package of military aid to Ukraine in the near future. And then they just made a comment about Russia's defence industrial base. 
They say it's going to take years to replenish what they've lost so far in this war. They are currently losing equipment quicker than it can be replenished. Now, of course, it's all relative when we talk about industrial losses and attrition and the, the logistics side of the war. We've spoken before about the need for external partners for Ukraine to take long-term policy and industrial positions if their promises of support are genuine. I've said the industrial side of this war is about to come to the fore. The Western official said Russia has a significant industrial base, but it's not currently working efficiently. Many young men have been mobilised for the war. Others are not delighted at the prospect of moving to areas of Russia where a lot of these manufacturing facilities are located. And it's said that this war has pushed the Russian army back 20 to 30 years. Now, we've said before that there's a lot more to the Russian armed forces, Air Force, Navy, very capable submarine force, cyber, nuclear, etc., etc. But in terms of one of the biggest threats to, to the West, and certainly to Europe, the Russian land army, this war has basically broken it. 20 to 30 years is a huge gap to have to fill. Like I say, it's still a very capable armed forces, but in the context of the funding arguments, in particularly in Washington, for a small investment, a small percentage of an annual defence budget in the US, it's broken the Russian army. That's got to be a good return on investment. As Mitt Romney told our very own Francis Dernie when we were in the States some weeks ago. Uh, so, Russian army, yes, in, in trouble to, uh, logistically, but that's not saying that it's all rosy for Ukraine and the external support either. And just finally, the Western official did note that the first-person view drones, the kamikaze drones, if you like, are an isolated area of Russian industrial innovation and success. Um, I think the same could be said for Ukraine as well. But the point was overall Russia is not moving forward at the moment industrially. It has the capacity to, but at the moment it's just not getting not getting its efficient efficiency together. I've got a couple of other updates, but I think I'd better take a pause there for breath over. Well, thank you very much for talking us through all of that, Dom. Francis, we've missed you a couple of times this week. Uh, what have you been looking at? Francis Dernley. Thank you, David. There's a lot going on. Now, I promised earlier in the week that I would talk in more detail about the Washington Post story on Nord Stream. But first, it's worth returning to the ongoing rows over border crossings. Now, Finland has said it will close four of its eight eastern border crossings with Russia early on Saturday, accusing Moscow of deliberately sending Middle Eastern migrants into Europe to destabilise the bloc. Now, Finland, of course, shares that 1,340 kilometre border with Russia and since August has seen a surge in people being allowed to cross into Finland, despite not having proper documentation. These are primarily, as I say, nationals from the Middle East and Africa without visas, according to the border guard. Now, the Finnish Prime Minister has accused Russia of trying to destabilise Finland in response to it joining NATO earlier this year, saying, and I quote, various signs that entering Finland is being aided and encouraged, organised. We've been preparing for different kinds of actions, malice by Russia, and therefore the situation doesn't come as a surprise. Now, for context, of course, in April, Moscow said it would take countermeasures in tactical and strategic terms after branding, branding Finland's decision to join NATO as an assault on its security. In response, the crossing points will close at midnight overnight on Friday until February 18th, Finland have said, with asylum applications to be centralised at two of the four crossing points that will stay open. As an aside, Finland is erecting a 200km fence on one side of the border, with, uh, which is due to be completed, I think, in about 2026. But anyway, we'll, we'll return to that another time. 
it's not just between Russia and NATO countries that there are frustrations over borders at the moment. Slovak truckers will stage a symbolic one-hour blockade of the country's main crossing with Ukraine to support Polish calls for restrictions on the number of Ukrainian trucks entering the EU. So the haulers' union, UNAS, has said, quote, we will request that the European Commission immediately introduces licenses for shipments for Ukrainian vehicles because European companies are falling on their mouth and cannot compete. Polish drivers have been blocking roads to three crossings with Ukraine for over a week, citing government inaction over loss of business to foreign competitors since the invasion. They insist on the return of a limited number of licenses for Ukrainian truckers, but that's a demand that Kiev has said it will not consider. Now, turning to Russia, we've discussed the clampdown recently, and yesterday a Russian court found 33-year-old artist and musician Alexander Shikhalenko guilty of knowingly spreading false news about the Russian army's behaviour in Ukraine and sentenced her to seven years in a prison colony. We've reported on her in the past. She replaced price tags in a supermarket in St. Petersburg in March last year with small pieces of paper urging an end to Russia's war in Ukraine and criticising the authorities. She denied the formal charge of knowingly spreading false information about the army. And the footage yesterday showed her blowing kisses to her supporters in the courtroom. But further, of course, the suppressing anti-war voices and locking up dissenters, we've discussed the recent phenomenon of pro-war prisoners being released. And there was an especially stark example of that this week, as reported in detail in the New York Times. Putin pardoned one of the convicted organisers of the murder of the famous journalist Anna Politskovskaya in return for his service in Ukraine in the latest in a series of such reprieves for high-profile criminals Now, she was one of Russia's most acclaimed journalists, and that was as a result of her uncompromising reports of human rights abuses during the country's wars in Chechnya that erupted in the 1990s, a subject we've talked about uh, many times. She was shot dead in the elevator of her apartment building in central Moscow by Sergei Kadi Kurbanov, a former law enforcement officer who was sentenced in 2014 to 20 years in prison over the killing, which took place in, in 2006. He is believed to have volunteered to fight in Ukraine and join the Wagner Group, a service which he has meant now to receive a pardon. Now, I reference the work of brave journalists there, but as part of the massive investigation to Cyprus we discussed earlier in the week, one of the biggest apparent revelations to come out of that, as reported by The Guardian, is that a leading Western journalist, long considered one of Germany's top independent experts on Russia, received at least €600,000 in undisclosed offshore payments from companies linked to an oligarch close to Putin. This is Hubert Seipel, an award-winning filmmaker and author and was, to quote The Guardian, paid money in instalments, which documents suggest was to support his work on two books, including one titled Putin's Power, Why Europe Needs Europe, sorry, Why Europe Needs Russia. And he wrote that it would chart Putin's rise to power and offer portrayals described by many as sympathetic to the Russian president. Seipel confirmed to The Guardian that he'd received support from the oligarch, saying his support relates exclusively to the book projects. He stressed that he remained impartial, saying I've always set clear legal boundaries that guaranteed my independence and condemned what he said were attempts to frame him as a special kind of journalistic secret agent with a pro-Kremlin anti-US stance. 
no evidence of suspicion of bias has ever been found in his work, he said, who had awarded him Germany's top media prices. But this is causing great anger in Germany, which, of course, has come under heavy scrutiny and criticism for its political and business elite's apparent ties to Russia since the invasion. But the truth is, this is much bigger than one man and one country. I know from contacts in academia, for instance, across Europe, that money is fairly routinely offered to academics and journalists via third parties who are producing work that's seen as helpful, sympathetic to Russia. I'm not saying that's what's happened in this case, to be clear, but if you are somebody who knows of these efforts, and many of you have written in, in the past, do reach out. It's very, very informative on this matter. So thank you. Thank you very much, Francis. Now, briefly, before we go to Joe Barnes and then our guest, this Washington Post article that you mentioned has led to quite a bit of commentary this week. What's it all about? Yes, so this is the latest on a saga, of course, that has captivated many, and we've discussed it many times, most recently over that long read alleging that Kiev was the most likely responsible for Nord Stream. Well, the Washington Post has done its own work on this and has published a lengthy investigation into a senior Ukrainian military officer with ties to the country's intelligence services, saying that according to officials in Ukraine and elsewhere in Europe, he played a central role in the bombing of Nord Stream natural gas pipelines last year. To quote the Post, the officer's role provides the most direct evidence to date, tying the military and security leadership of Ukraine to a controversial act of sabotage that has spawned multiple criminal investigations and the US and Western officials have called a dangerous attack on Europe's energy infrastructure. The man concerned is Roman Chavinsky, a decorated 48-year-old colonel who served in Ukraine's Special Operations Forces and was the coordinator of the Nord Sea operation, people familiar with his role said, managing logistics and support for a six-person team that rented a sailboat under false identities and used deep-sea diving equipment to place explosive charges on the gas pipelines. But perhaps the most interesting aspect of this piece is how, as the Post says, his role illustrates the complex dynamics and internal rivalries of the wartime government in Kyiv, where the intelligence and military establishment is often in tension with the political leadership. It suggests the Nord Stream operation was designed to keep Zelensky out of the loop, reporting instead to Chief of Defence Zeluzhny. And we've been speculated on tensions between those two as recently as last week. So it should be read in that context, I think. Indeed, some are even alleging that this piece may have been leaked by one of those two parties. Javinsky himself is being held in a Kiev jail on charges that he abused his power, stemming from a plot to lure a Russian pilot to defect to Ukraine in July last year. Authorities allege that he was acting without permission and that the operation gave away the coordinates of a Ukrainian airfield, prompting a Russian rocket attack that killed a soldier and injured 17 others. In a statement quoted in the Post, Chavinsky said, I've devoted my entire life to the defence of Ukraine, saying that the charges against him related to the Russian airport operation were groundless and far-fetched, which I will definitely prove in court. So an interesting piece, David, though there are still huge debates about Nord Stream, so I don't think we can say case closed just yet. Well, thank you, Francis and uh, Dom. Before we go to our guest, let's go to Joe Barnes. Joe, you've been on a reporting trip this week. It sounds very interesting and exciting. Where are you and um, what have you been doing? Yep. um, So I've come to Hungary, to Budapest and uh, various other places to discover and look into the tricky relationship that Hungary has with Ukraine um, ahead of what will be next month's decision on Ukraine potentially starting official accession talks to join the European Union. 
And I, I can honestly say it's only complicated matters more of visiting Hungary and listening to politicians, academics, think tankers, the like, and about their views and how the government has formulated a policy towards Ukraine, which most of our listeners would describe as hostile. So Hungary itself has a really checkered past with Russia and the Soviet Union. And a lot of our conversations start at the 1956 Hungarian Revolution, known as the sort of the Hungarian uprising, which was a countrywide attempted revolution against the Hungarian People's Republic, which was basically run by the Soviet Union. Um, and how much Hungarians hate that period that they were occupied by the Soviet Union. We were given a tour of the Buda Castle district, which was largely damaged during the Second World War. But instead of being reconstructed by the Soviet occupiers, it was turned into sort of Soviet office blocks and brutalist architecture. And all you hear about is these sort of like Hungarians saying we're so proud to be pulling this stuff down and rebuilding it up with like the old neo-Gothic architecture that once stood before the war. And you kind of think, hang on, is that not a sign that we dislike Russia, we hate Russia, we hate what they stand for, and we hate what essentially Putin is trying to do by recreating the Soviet Union by invading part of Georgia, Crimea, and then uh, its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. But then you speak to government politicians, they're like, yes, we condemn the invasion, we hate the aggression, but we're not going to stop our business ties with Russia, we're still friends with them. We see that as an important part of delivering energy security to our country. Um, we're helping Ukrainian refugees when they arrive, but largely they don't want to stay in Hungary. They move on elsewhere. Um, we're not we're not donating weapons because we see weapons as a part of us joining the conflict. It's escalatory. We we risk basically pulling NATO uh, and Hungary into into a war with Russia. And it's it's sort of that is you see is compelling, but on the other hand, they speak about their sort of their hatred for the Soviet Union, their their, their proud heritage in uprisings against the Soviet Union, even if it failed, and everything just seems a bit contradictory to start with. Um, and I'll stop there because I'm sure you have some questions. Yeah, that sounds absolutely fascinating. I'm really interested in the fact that you found it, as you said, you sort of it's more complicated, and you're, you're actually leaving with more questions than answers. I mean, what, what are you taking away from this trip? If, if somebody was to ask you, what do you think Hungary is going to do in the future? What would you say? So it's, I'm, I still haven't, and I have asked. Oof, I've managed to sit down with the Hungarian Europe Minister, a Deputy Foreign Minister, um, Viktor Orban's Policy Director his international spokesman, I've asked the same question. Are you going to say yes or no to Ukraine's uh, accession talk starting in December? And they, they point to the fact is, look, while Ukraine is a country at war, we're never going to let them in. We don't believe Ukraine is a country that has satisfied even a single requirement to start talks. Um, if you remember back uh, to the other week when we were discussing the commission's report, they said that 95% of the requirements that were set by EU member states for Ukraine to start a session talks have now been fulfilled. There's still a very complicated row over the the treatment of Hungarian minorities in the Transcarpathian region of Ukraine. Um, and uh, they still accuse Ukraine of 
treading on minorities with its pro-Ukrainian policies, uh, whether it be sort of diminishing the, the teachings of Hungarian language, access to Hungarian uh, language media, funding for sort of cultural programs that are Hungarian in that part of the world. So it's just very complicated. And again, it raise, raises more questions than answers. What we have discovered, and I'll let you into some sort of secret intel is, because I'm sure you're asked about it, is weapons. So Hungary is absolutely against sending weaponry to Ukraine. But what we have learned is Hungary has given the go-ahead to other NATO countries to transport weapons through Hungary and using that border that Hungary shares with Ukraine to get weapons in. Because we often speak about bottlenecks uh, because most of the kit goes through Poland, but only so much can cross through a border at one time. So actually Hungary has accepted, but kept incredibly quiet on the fact that it is actually letting weapons pass through Hungarian territory into Ukraine, even if they aren't Hungarian. One of the things that I really can't comprehend is I was speaking to the defence minister yesterday. I went to see um, a Hungarian military exercise where they were they were basically acknowledging that artillery is back at the forefront of warfare and they were training with their uh, PZH-2000 self-propelled howitzers and we got to see a live fire exercise. But I asked the defence minister afterwards, I said, look, you're going through this massive, massive military upgrade. You're, you're getting rid of your old Soviet past and upgrading to modern kit. As I said, this German howitzer, they've got uh, NASAM, the Norwegian US manufactured air defence systems. Uh, they've got Leopard 2 tanks. And the list goes on to so a lot of American infantry fighting vehicles, including the uh, the MRAP, uh, Humvees, etc., etc., um, but one thing I proposed to him, I said, look, you've got a lot of sort of old legacy Soviet kit that you have been maintaining because it makes up part of your air defence. You've got T-72 tanks, which you're phasing out. You could sell this on the international market to the likes of the UK, the US, in order to raise extra money for your military upgrades. And he kind of said, well, I'll never discount anything, but we don't want our kit that's seen as Hungarian uh, slipping into into Ukraine, even if it's not Hungary giving it to Ukraine. And the reason they say that is we have a moral standpoint that we see any weapon that goes from Hungary as an escalation. And I said, but come on, like, you're not giving a Leopard or a HIMARS or a Storm Shadow or a Attackum, which could probably be considered escalatory, but have proved not to be escalatory. You're, you're giving maybe a, a couple of old Soviet legacy K2 air defense systems and they went yeah no no really not it's not our war it's not our war even though they like to use language that suggests that our people are dying in ukraine referring to the hungarian minority that live in that transcarpathian region about 120,000 of them so i think that's a fascinating outlook on weaponry um, any more questions <laughs> Let's come back to you at the end, Joe. That's absolutely fascinating. Let's go now instead to our guest, uh, Mikolo uh, Kuleba. Mikolo, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you also for coming into the studio. It's a great pleasure um, to have you here at The Telegraph. For our listeners, could you just give us a bit of a background about yourself and your work? Thank you so much for invitation. It's an honor to be here with you. And it is so important to raise awareness about the Russian genocide and about our children who've been kidnapped. But about myself, I started 25 years in child protection, 
working with the street children after Soviet Union was collapsed. We had thousands of children who lived on the streets, and I started my programs for them to build in services, and I had a network of these services for street children, how to effectively take them out from the streets and provide recovery and find a family for orphans because many children were, were fleeing from the orphanages and they had no parents. And, you know, now I very well remember what happened 25 years ago and now we have a lot of kids who need support, who lost their parents during this war. And for the last seven years, just before the full-scale invasion, I've been commissioner on children's rights with the Zelensky and before with Poroshenko. And I was responsible for child protection in my country. And now it's very hard feelings for me because I know how children suffer, especially that ones who've been kidnapped by Russians. Well, thank you so much, Mikola, for sort of introducing us to all of that. Can you talk to us about Save Ukraine, this organization? What work do you do? What challenges do you face? And tell us a little bit about the children you help. Yeah, our main activity is evacuating children from combat zones. And we evacuated more than 100,000 children and women when after full-scale invasion started. And we have a rescue teams there. We have armored vehicles, cars, ambulances, buses, and we provide evacuation constantly. And after that, we provide emergency assistance. We assess families and children needs, and we place them to our Hope and Healing Center. We have seven Hope and Healing Center with living six months program with psychologists, uh, with the different kind of support for these families and children. We have a center, Hope and Healing Center for sexual abuse survivors, for orphans, for abandoned elderlies, because very often we can find elderlies in combat zones who are living there with any support. Uh, but the main activity is to return uh, children who've been abducted from Russia and occupied territories because many kids, you, you know, after 2014, more than 1.5 million children stays on occupied territories or in Russia Federation. And how many of them unaccompanied? We we don't know, but it's dozens of thousands of kids who, whom parents were killed or prisoned or disappeared or infiltration camps. And especially, who knows how many children have been kidnapped from Mariupol, whom parents were killed there. It's thousands of children. Where are they? We have no any information about them. But as you know, Maria Lvova-Bilova, who received warrant order from ICC, were mm, reporting that almost 740,000 Ukrainian children were registered in Russia Federation after full-scale invasion started. But where are these children? Who are they? How many of them lost their parents? But she told that I will never give any information to Ukraine. But it, it was my main call to Red Cross, United Nations, to ask them, guys, we, we need your help. We're not asking you to return this case, but just give us information. Where are they? Where? Because it is Ukrainian children. And Russia provide re-education these kids. 
re-indoctrination them. They give them Russian passports. And we have a lot of witnesses from the kids who've been returned by Save Ukraine, what Russians doing with them. I, I can only give you some exampling, examples and explanation about systematic destruction of Ukrainian identity in Russian facilities and camps, in re-educational camps. And children are forced to listen to Russian propaganda and false narratives about Ukraine every day. Children are not allowed to speak the Ukrainian language and forced to attend Russian language, literature, and history classes. Children are forced to listen to the Russian anthem regularly. Sometimes children were reporting that five hours a day Russian anthem played in the camp. It, it is horrible. Mikado, it's Dom here. Thanks so much for... I mean, I know you can see that. I'm literally sat two, two feet away from you, but just so other people. Apologies. Thank you so much for coming in. Really appreciate it. Now, I was at the Magnitsky Awards last night, the Human Rights Awards. You won the Outstanding Human Rights Activist Award for the year. Very well deserved. Can you talk to us a little bit about the work that you've done that was nominated for this for this award? The 204 children, I think, as of last night. I know the numbers are helpfully and delightfully going up each day, but the 204 children that you've managed to get out of Russia. And just a little bit about the process. How do you do that? How do you reach out and touch the other side such that you can just sort out the logistics and make, make this happen? Thank you so much. I'm very honored to receive Magnitsky Award and especially Bill, Bill Browder, who invited me there. And it's a privilege, especially privilege for my team, which is recognized as the rescue team, which saving the lives of abducted children. Yeah, really, we return more than 200 kids from the Russia. It's very risky for all people who are doing this. And um, it's uh, very hard to find that kids who've been kidnapped, especially younger kids, because they have no social media or cell phones. We have a lot of calls from kids who've been rescued by Save Ukraine, and we connected with that kids. We planned a route, and because just to reach a child in Russia or occupied territory, you have to go through Poland, Belarus, Russia, and very often uh, official guardians or representative of these kids should be interrogated by hours or days. We have cases where you know, relatives were deported, where they were forced to go through lie detection or to go to have a DNA test just to prove that they are relatives, having all documents, or especially one grandmother who had been sitting in Russia and occupied territories three months just to prove that she can take a grandson, he has his severe disabilities, and just to take him back, and she escaped, but it's a horror. It's really pure genocide what they are doing, and every this case under control of Maria Lvova Belova, who is a criminal. And uh, we understand that how many kids are there. It's hundreds of thousands, and it's very hard to find this information. That's why we ask Everybody who could have any information about that kids, especially for that ones who were placed to Russian families. We returned kids who've been placed to Russian families. And we learned 
that they've been brainwashed because many of these kids have been reporting that we learned that Ukraine no exist anymore. Who told you about this? Russian. This family told us, oh, oh a Nazi will kill you if you will return to Ukraine or you will be shelled or, oh, it's really unbelievable what happened there. It's an evil state. And thank you. Just just a couple more for me, if, if I may. You, you, I mean, that's just shocking, the idea there of, well, the, the effect it's having on the mental health of these children or the mental framework they are developing. If they're too young to even know what's right and wrong yet, they are learning an, an incorrect architecture about how to look at the world. When the you get the children back, um, how much input do you then have into their ongoing care and support how what kind of mental health traumas are you seeing and how much can you help there and just finally are you able to do you have the capacity the bandwidth to be able to collect any any information of evidential quality that could then go to the international criminal court yeah from the beginning we are working with the international criminal court and before the Maria Lobelova and Putin received the warrant order, we gave them information about that kids who been forcibly deported and returned. And we documenting carefully all of these crimes. We working with the National General Prosecutor Office and with law enforcement. And uh, it is very important for us to prove that what Russia is doing with our kids is genocide. It's a war crimes because all kids who have been returned, they are witnessing about the horrible circumstances of being there, what happened with them there and about indoctrination, all of this is genocide. And uh, you know that a genocidal plan does not rely on death camps now and forced famine anymore. Those scores of Ukrainians are dying every day. And we have to define it's like a new phenomena, a new genocide when they are not killing physically millions of Ukrainians or children, but they're killing their identities. They erase their identity through indoctrination and re-education, and they instill hatred towards Ukraine. And many of that kids who've been deported now hate Ukraine. They are ready to fight because they believe we are Nazi. They believe they are fighting against NATO. And it's hard to believe how many Thousands young adults who've been school children in Donbass or Crimea after 2014, after first invasion, now fighting as a Russian soldiers and dying for nothing because they believe that they're fighting for freedom of Russian evil state. What for? I wanted to ask. We of course have been, we've been following this now for many many months. And one of the figures that's quite often cited that's come from the Ukrainian government is that 19,000 children have been kidnapped. That statistic has not been updated for some time. In your experience, from what you know, do you think that number is on the low side? Do you think the real figure is much higher? What's the latest that you're hearing on this? Because we're still hearing reports that it's actually happening all the time. This is not stopped. Mm -hmm. This is a continuous process. Maria Lvova Belova bragged about 740,000 Ukrainian children being forcibly transferred after the full-scale invasion started. 
Russia officials openly expressed the intent to have the transfer Ukrainian children educated in the Russian language, adopted in the Russian families, and turned into Russian citizenship. As I told you, we have no idea how many of them unaccompanied children. That's why Ukrainian government identified only almost 20,000 that kids who've been forcibly deported. But it, it, I think this number much higher. It is 40 or 50,000 kids, but we have to say about 2014, not only after full-scale invasion. And it's a real tragedy. And I think the next 10 or 20 years, we will identify that kids. But how many of them will lost their identity? We don't know. Because every day we are losing kids. Russian give them Russian passports immediately after deportation. They give them birth certificates, Russian passports. We just returned 14 years old boy. And he reported that after he being kidnapped, Russian gave him Russian birth certificate. He cut for pieces and they gave him another, but didn't give him to his hands, but put in the folder of his case and then forced him to receive Russian passport. He refused, but they he was punished and he was forced to receive Russian passport. Yeah, it's I understand how hard for a child, any Ukrainian child, to leave Ukrainian identity, to live with Ukrainian identity in Russian state, because when you express your identity there, just to wear your T-shirt with a Ukrainian flag, you could be punished. And thinking long term, what kind of processes do you think are going to be necessary in order to de-brainwash these children. I imagine that process has already begun with those that you've brought back. But what kind of programs are going to be necessary? What kind of, how do you even begin to repair the damage that's been done by this? Save Ukraine, which I run, uh, we are building these services and uh, we have deprogramming, a special program for kids. And it depends how long time child is were staying in in Russia or occupied territories. How old is this child? Are because for younger kids it, it is very hard. They are hugely traumatized. They have a huge experience of being under the shellings, have been transferred to different regions, camps, and they change locations. Especially for that kids who've been in Russian families. Yeah, we we return. These kids, it was very hard, but we clearly understand what happened there. And can, can you imagine one boy who been returned? He attending Russian school, and they forced him to write a grateful letter to a Russian soldiers who were fighting against Ukraine and kill Ukrainians. He was living in Russian foster family where foster father was a Russian soldier who was fighting and wounded and it's a horror for for these kids being there and i think it is it will be very hard process to build a services for deprogramming these kids to find psychologists and therapists just to return them to ukrainian reality integrate them into ukrainian society so coming with my question hi mikhailo and congratulations on your yeah sort of 
stellar work, which um, is, I'm sure, more significant than the award, but the award's great news. We've heard lots of stories about how children have been retrieved by their families and often daring travels through occupied territories into Crimea, for example. So I was wondering if you could share any sort of stories of incredible adventures that say parents, grandparents have gone to the extent of they've gone to to sort of retrieve their uh, abducted children that have been taken to these holiday camps apparently and then forced to stay in Russian-held territories, uh, even taken to Russia in some cases. Yeah, that would be be great to hear, hear if you have any. A lot of kids, especially through the summertime, have been sent to Russian camps in Russia or in Crimea and um, it, it was a clear Russian plan. They had a competition between Russian region who will host in these camps more Ukrainian children. And it was a hundreds of buses, buses which came to different territories and collect these kids. And the children reporting that collabora- collaborators first were involved and then the children to this camp. And then they invited another families to send their kids and it was hard to refuse because if you refuse of these proposals they you could be punished uh, uh, because collaborators can report to the russian fsb guys that you are pro ukrainian and you could be jailed and you could be tortured and we have a witnesses when just for refuse this uh, uh, this proposal uh, these families could, could jail and they punished that's why thousands of ukrainian children were sent in there and uh, just just yesterday i received new information from the yale school uh, about the investigation that thousands of ukrainian children were sent to belarus too and the main question how many of them stay there how many of them unaccompanied there? How many of them received Russian passports and placed to Russian families after receiving Russian citizenship? It's really, it's a pure genocide what happened there. That, that's why we are moving ahead to find more kids, to return more kids, to recover them and integrate them uh, into Ukrainian society. Mikula, before we go to our final thoughts, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important for our audience to hear? I appeal to you today to raise your voices to condemn Russian forcible transfer of Ukrainian children as genocide to pursue accountability for perpetrators of this devastating crime, which defies humanity in itself. I ask you to help us raise awareness of this genocide and support Save Ukraine in our efforts to bring our children home. Please, you can visit our website, saveukraineua.org, to find more information about us. And remember, our children must never be treated as spoils of war, and that crimes against children will be met with Fairest condemnation and prosecution. Well, thank you so much, Mikola, for joining us today. Dom, Francis, and Joe, can I go to your final thoughts, please? Dom Nichols. 
Yeah, thanks, David. So just just kind of finishing off the, on the, this idea about information, the information flank to this war, as I uh, as I often refer to it there, and, and what's being put in the heads of these kids. I just want to say that the Russian mill blogger Telegram channel Rybar, the one that we cite probably more than any other Russian mill bloggers, it's seen as inhabiting the, the less inaccurate end of the spectrum, if you like, although it's not the greatest accolade and, and one we always caveat where we can. Anyway, they've received an honour from uh, Putin, a state honour. The, um, the site has previously been critical of Russia's military performance during the full-scale invasion, although from the point of wanting to push the Russians to do more and act harder rather than holding them to any kind of moral account, but continuing the Kremlin's long-standing effort to co-opt mill bloggers and make them loyal to the Kremlin, Putin awarded the founder of Rybar, Mikhail Zvinchuk, the Russian Order of Merit of the Fatherland Second Class. Other Russian mill bloggers congratulated Zinchuk and, and praised him for launching the first or getting the first award for a, for a channel, Telegram channel. Now, last December, you may remember, Putin used uh, Zvinchuk in the Kremlin Working Group on mobilization problems. And this was seen as the first concerted attempt to regain control, or Putin's attempt to regain control over that slice of Russia's domestic audience that had turned to Telegram for accurate war coverage that was independent of the Russian state media. So, I mean, we, as I said, we don't rely on Rybar at all. We cite them with caveats where we think they are closer to the money than we might otherwise be able to see. But this is yet another example of information being, being controlled and, and closed down by by the Kremlin. So we will obviously make note of that as we uh, as we continue to report. Thank you, Dom. Joe Barnes. I want to speak about sort of the differing in intelligence. Um, often if you speak to British and American officials, Ukrainian officials, especially those in, involved with Zelensky, will we'll shout, will give a positive outlook on Ukraine. That fits their political narrative. Hungary is on the complete opposite side of that. And uh, so I was speaking to Hung- the Hungarian National Security Advisor earlier this week and and he said, look, as it stands, Ukraine is, is going to lose the fight. He said that Russia will always have more ability to produce weapons, to get artillery shells to the front line. And it simply has more men. And he, he this so the guy, he's called a Mr. Bacondi, he went on to then say, look, without the American support, Europe cannot sustain Ukraine on its own. So... Basically, he said that the given the current stalemate that is apparently happening in the fighting, that the best thing Ukraine can do is sort of go to the negotiating table. And that's, uh, I know it's sort of in the interest uh, of of the Hungarian government to say that because their line is a ceasefire line. Yeah, so it's just interesting to see the sort of how people use intelligence to fulfil their narrative. Um, so no one in the West would call for a ceasefire for Ukraine because it would cement the conflict in place, but someone with friendlier ties to Moscow would happily do that. So, yeah, and it's how their interpretation of intelligence uh, points to that political narrative is always interesting, and I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Joe. Francis Turney. Thanks, David. Well, of course, one of the core questions of recent weeks is about what next in the military sphere. We talked about Zeruzhny's essay, and the Institute for the Study of War has laid out their feelings on this matter. And... I've gone through it. It's quite lengthy. And I'm going to read some extracts from it. And forgive me if it's a little bit dense, but this is, I think, really, really important, uh, what they've released here. So um, a few extracts by Frederick Kagan. 
The positional war in Ukraine is not a stable stalemate. It is not the result of fundamental realities in modern warfare that can only be changed with a technological or tactical revolution, as was the First World War stalemate. Neither does it rest on a permanent parity in military capacity between Russia and Ukraine that will continue indefinitely regardless of Western support. It results, on the contrary, from self-imposed limitations on the technologies the West has been willing to provide Ukraine and constraints on the Russian defence industrial base, largely stemming from Putin's unwillingness to so far commit Russia fully to this war. The current balance is thus, in fact, highly unstable and could readily be tipped in either direction by decisions made in the West. Obviously, that's really, really important here because I keep constantly hearing, as I'm sure listeners do, that we are in a permanent state of stalemate now and that negotiations must therefore be forthcoming. The ISW is challenging that heavily. It goes on. The solution to these challenges does not require a major technological revolution by either side. On the one hand, Western arsenals already possess the weaponry necessary to address nearly all the challenges confronting the combatants in Ukraine. Ukraine's ability to prevent Russian forces from conducting large-scale mechanised manoeuvre warfare most crucially remains absolutely dependent on the continued provision of Western aid at at least the current scale. Air defence, artillery and anti-armour systems are existential requirements for Ukraine. Ukraine cannot build or acquire enough such systems on its own to prevent the Russian military from regaining the ability to conduct mechanised defensive operations at scale or, indeed, from devastating Ukraine's cities. Western-provided anti-tank systems have been essential to Ukraine's efforts to stop Russian mechanised advances since the earliest days. Western-provided artillery systems have also provided an essential role in allowing Ukraine to hold the current lines. Russian fear of Ukraine counter-battery has caused the military to pull its guns further back to the rear to avoid concentrating them and to refrain from using them for the extended volleys that Russian doctrine calls for. Thus, the end of Western support to Ukraine would strip Ukraine of these and other capabilities. The result would not be a continuation of the current positional warfare, but rather the opening up of opportunities for the Russians to renew large-scale mechanised offensives with good prospects for success. The front lines would very likely cease to be static as the Russians restored manoeuvre to the battlefield. It is difficult to see how Ukraine could offset the losses of these capabilities in a short period of time, if at all, given the state of its defence, industrial base and its economy. The most probable scenario is, therefore, that the Russians would begin once again driving Ukrainian forces back, taking larger areas of Ukraine, devastating Ukraine's cities from the air and possibly collapsing Ukraine's ability to fight entirely. There is every reason to believe, in short, that cutting off Western aid to Ukraine now would allow Russia to win militarily. An expansion of Western aid to Ukraine, on the other hand, could well enable Ukrainian forces to restore manoeuvre to the battlefield on their own terms. Increasing Ukraine's air power too would likely make the significant impact on the battlefield. Limitations in the Western defence industrial base mean that shortages in Western artillery and ground-based short-range precision systems will not be rapidly overcome. The Western arsenals contain large numbers of air-launched precision systems that could offset the artillery limitations. Rapid advances require armour, and the lethality of the modern battlefield requires both enough armour to be able to afford to take significant losses, something Dom has talked about many times, and to still accomplish operationally significant missions. 
The West needs to increase the amount of armor it is providing Ukraine dramatically in order to set conditions to successful Ukrainian offensive operations. The 2023 counteroffensive was hampered, among other things, by the fact that the West provided relatively small numbers of a multitude of different fighting vehicles with different characteristics and operational requirements. Many were not suitable for breaching prepared defensive positions at all because they lacked sufficient armoured protection to survive against Russian tanks and anti-tank systems. The US has hundreds of tanks in storage in Europe, pre-positioned there to be ready for a NATO war with Russia. Releasing these tanks to Ukraine quickly would significantly increase Ukraine's ability to conduct mechanised manoeuvre. Zaluzhny rightly identified an array of reforms and adjustments Ukrainian forces can and should be taking independent of Russian aid. The advent of pervasive reconnaissance and strike drones on the battlefield offers enormous scope for more transformational military change, among other things. The war in Ukraine in this respect is likely similar to the Spanish Civil War, which previewed many key changes that would come to fruition in World War II, such as the use of air power in many new roles. The ISW rounds up. US policymakers must understand, above all, that the current positional war in Ukraine is not a stable or permanent reality, inherent either in the nature of war today or in the relative balance of military power between Russia and Ukraine. Ending or significantly curtailing American military support to Ukraine now will enable Russia to win this war on the battlefield. That would be catastrophic, not only for Ukraine, but also for NATO and for the United States. So apologies there for quite a long reading, but I thought it was very worthwhile to do so. A very, very interesting piece, which I have abridged there. So I'd recommend listeners go on the ISW website for the more detailed version. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.